Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Avocado Toast Career Show. Yes, Alan, that's the real name. As <laughs> a part of the workforce show, uh, I'm joined today by Alan Gannett. Welcome. Hey, man. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. We had some technical issues, but I think right now we are recording, if you're hearing this. Yeah, you sound great. <laughs> great. Um, so let's start off. Can you tell me a little bit about Track Maven and then a lot of bit about The Creative Curve, uh, the new book you're working on? Yeah, so my um, my job is I run a company called TrackMaven. It's a DC-based tech company. Um, we have about um, I think it's now 55 employees. Been around for about five years, and we help big brands track their marketing data, and from that data understand what are the patterns, what are the things they should be doing differently, what are the stories they should be telling, and who should they be telling them to. So we like to think about ourselves is the science behind iconic brands, and we're used by folks like the MBA, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, a lot of brands you've heard of. And that has always been, for me, a really fun and interesting role, the sort of combination of right brain, left brain. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, I started working on this book that's coming out June 12th and called The Creative Curve. And the whole book is this idea that, you know, the myth of creativity in Western culture is that it is this sort of flash of genius, sort of aha moment type experience for a select few, you know, child prodigies. But the reality is when you actually look at the science and you look at the true history of creativity, it's actually, it's a hard skill that can be learned and enhanced. And so the book is my sort of exploration through that. And with the goal of coming up and saying like, well, how can you actually become more creative? And ultimately, I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. These were Oscar winners, billionaires, Michelin star chefs, Tony Award winners, and I found these four things they all do to enhance their creativity. I explained what they are, and I explained the science of why they work. And so, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, how did you get in touch with all this, folks? Uh, I'm really pleasantly persistent. Great. <laughs> yeah, Michelin star chef, I feel like they would be – Sneaky, sneakily the hardest one to get a hold of. Oh, they like were. Like weird schedules. Like that, right? <laughs> totally. So, well, thank you for writing that book to make us all feel a little bit better that we are not, uh, you know, our iPhones are not out yet. But uh, it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like uh, you you might have cracked the code a little bit. Um, well, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But uh, so I read this book called uh, Deep Work. Have you, I don't know if you've heard of it. So I've and never, I've never, I've never read it, but I'm, I mean, no, it's Cal Newport, right? Yeah, Cal Newport. Yeah, he, exactly. And so he's sort of, I think he's reasonably well known. The, the reason I bring it up though, is that I think one of the things he talks about is, um, you know, a lot of folks look at careers and being really good at something in general as like this sort of Matt Damon and Goodwill hunting, like you're supposed to be <laughs> kind of divinely touched with some skill 
as opposed to, you know, a lot of focus, a lot of effort. I mean, would you say that that was what you found in a bit of your research as well? Yeah, 100%. So the book is broken down to two halves. The first half is all about debunking the sort of, I call it the inspiration theory of creativity. The second half is explaining, well, if it is not actually like that, how do you actually develop it? And so, yeah, in the first half, what's interesting is when you look at science, study after study is found, and they've looked at it from multiple different angles, that you don't have to be an IQ genius to be a creative genius. And, in fact, creativity is one of those things that's developed over time. And we often mistake the roots of creativity. Um, and we often sort of obfuscate them when talking about creative geniuses. So it sounds like it just came from nowhere. When, in reality, you know, typically what really happened was, you know, there was some kindergartner who was told very young that you know, even if a painting they made with their fingers wasn't good, they were told it was good. They got some positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And that compounds over time where if that child is, you know, painting since they were five and you start painting at 20, well, they're going to have this huge compounded advantage that you're not going to have. And yeah. we mis- we often mistake that for some sort of divine talent. And it's not. It's just time. And um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about sort of creativity is there's obviously the sort of creative skill development. But the other side of it is people often mistake what creativity is. And so, you know, creativity is one of those things where if I ask you to, to, like, describe it, it's actually pretty hard. It's like you know it when you see it. Right. And the problem with that is it makes it really hard to, like, write a book about it if there's not a clear definition. So it turns out there's actually a really good definition. And academics have come up with the definition that creativity is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable. Novel and valuable. And the and is really important there because if you just create something novel, well, I could throw a bunch of paint on a canvas and it definitely wouldn't be creative if I did it. Um, (laughs) If it's just valuable, that could be an Excel macro I make. And so novel and value, that's that's the key to creativity. And there's sort of an obvious problem with that. The obvious problem is that value is a subjective assessment. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like how, how, you know, how do you drive in value? That's a that's a huge question to really wrap around. Totally. And so in the book, I, I, I sort of tackle in the first half. I really I dive into this question a lot. And what's really interesting is, okay, so creativity is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable. And if value is essentially a social construct, because we all have to agree that something is valuable for it to be valuable, right. then the real question that creatives have is how do they create ideas that other people perceive as valuable? And so I spend a lot of time... Um, on this topic in the book, and to to sort of to explore this, I, I look at trends and hits, and you know hits are things that a group of people have said this is valuable, and you know I don't just mean hits in the sort of the mainstream sense, although those are also creative, but I also mean hits among you know there could be a hit paper at a academic conference, or you know among some really snooty art critics there could be a hit hit a hit new artist, yeah, and so. What's interesting is when you actually look at the research, what people like is actually pretty scientific. And what scientists have found is that there's this relationship between exposure and preference, where the more we're exposed to something, the more we like it up into a point, and then we get bored of it. And what this means is that for creatives, the goal is to create something that has the right balance of familiarity and novelty. It can't be too new. It can't be 
also too familiar. If you create something that's too too familiar, it's just boring. If you create something that's too new, it's just sort of eccentric. And so ultimately, where people are able to create things that have value is when they create things that have that balance of novelty and familiarity, right? Star Wars was a Western in space. Right. When people watch Star Wars, they, they, the story arc was not new. The setting right. was new. And so that was a really interesting thing, just like diving into creativity. Is there's so much really fascinating research on human taste, human preference, value judgment, all this stuff. But, like, we typically don't really dive into it. And we just sort of say, well, creativity is magic. You have to be inspired. I think that's mm-hmm. really, you know, cutting ourselves short. Yeah. And so <laughs> did you even find it a little bit disenchanting to find out that, that, there, that there's such a tension between familiarity and novelty, right? Like, did you say, oh, my God, the reason I like this song is because I've heard a thousand songs really similar. <laughs> totally. And that's, and that's the thing is you, you realize that, that balance is actually really interesting. So basically what um, psychology researchers and neuroscience researchers have found is that as people, we have these two really important sort of urges. They all go back to evolutionary biology. We have these two really important urges. On one hand, we crave things that are familiar because they make us feel safe. They protect mm-hmm. us from danger. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a prehistoric cave dweller um, and there's a, you, know, you run into a, you see a new cave you've never been in before, your brain's going, eh, this might be dangerous. Versus if you've seen one you've seen before, you know, okay, this is safe, this is good. So we seek out the familiar. But we also seek out the novel because we're looking for new sources of reward. And so right. this seems like a contradiction, and it is, but the result is this really graceful bell-shaped curve. I call it the creative curve in my book, but scientists you know, call it the inverse, you, the inverse you relationship between exposure and preference. And basically... That's not result, a great book title, though. Yeah, that's not a great book title. <laughs> and basically what it is is that these two, ur- these two urges sort of push against each other, and the result is that the more we're exposed to something, the more we like it up until a point, and then our novelty-seeking kicks in, and we get bored of it and look for something new. And so for creatives, that's really important. And this is why, you know, you see musicians that have lasted a long time, like you know, the Beatles had this amazing 10-year run. They were mm. constantly changing their musical style to fit things that would be the right level of familiarity and novelty for their audience. Because if they kept doing right. the same albums as help, it would eventually just sound boring and old and cliché. <laughs> I want to start like just rattling off artists who did the did the latter there. Oh yeah, one hit wonders galore. <laughs> um, did you find it uh, daunting at all to like have to invoke evolutionary biology? I mean, like when you're writing this, the scope must have gotten crazy, <laughs> or, oh, or was that God. exciting? I mean, oh, it's fun. I mean, the book like so the book is in the sort of like business book pop psychology category, and um, most of the books in this category are like really sort of like they take a few scientific principles and tell all these stories around them. This book is not that book. It is a very accessible book that I say is 50-50 science and stories. So like, and I try to make the science really, really easy to understand. So I have diagrams and illustrations, and I walk people through the studies themselves so they can sort of experience it. And so the book is meant to really be a rigorous look at creativity. I like to think about it as sort of like a creativity one-on-one course in a 220-page book. And so it was definitely daunting. It took a long time because, you know, I have a, I have a day job. And so, right. um, you know, this was like a three-plus-year three, three plus year project. Um, but I think the result is 
a really clear and concise and hopefully fun understanding of the underlying principles behind creativity more than just, oh, it's magic. And before we go too much further, can can you just actually say where people can get the creative curve? Just because I don't want to have that be lost after this interesting conversation. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, um, so it's anywhere books are sold. And then if you go to thecreativecurve.com, um, you can find links to all the different booksellers. There's a book trailer. There's um, You can download the preface. Um, there's some reviews and stuff. So, yeah, any, anywhere books are sold. Yeah, so – Getting back, uh, so you, you run Track Maven. You're also you, you also seem to be a pretty big influencer on LinkedIn. When did you find the time? This might seem like a dumb question, but I don't understand how you wrote a book. I really don't. How did you find the time to do that? <laughs> like, I don't have I don't have kids, right? I'm a, I'm a yeah. I don't have kids. There's not a you know I have a dog. That's about the extent of my responsibility. So I'm always more okay. impressed with CEOs have children. I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> right. Forming a human and a book. Yeah, the book can take a can take two months off when needed. <laughs> right. Um, cool. So, uh, how long have you been? How long have you been writing, Alex? Uh, you. Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Oh, am I sorry? Uh, how long have you been uh, writing? Um, I've been writing for about seven years. I used to. I started. I write. I wrote a column for the Next Web, and then I took a couple years off, and then I started writing a column for Fast Company. And about that time is when I started slowly, slowly working on the book. And so I had a sort of Sunday morning routine where basically, you know, Sunday mornings were sort of my, were my writing time, and nothing would get in the way of that. That's great. Um, so I, I guess I have, I have asked this question before. To, am, I, am I coming through clearly, by the way? Yeah, you sound great. Okay. Uh, I've asked this question before to other kind of serial entrepreneurs, um, and it, I think it's kind of related to the to the stuff you look at in the creative curve. And that is, um, this is a long-winded one, so prepare. Basically, <laughs> like, what is the, like, for a business idea, like, what do you think the kernel is? And I, I guess the, the options I'd lay out to you, are, I guess it's a spectrum, are I've, I've heard people say it's like this singular purpose that is kind of realized um, when you're obsessively involved with an idea. Like, you know, you hear the Silicon Valley types really say, like, I was put on this earth to do, I don't know, mobile delivery or, uh, you know, there's like this divine purpose that leads you to successful outcomes. You're reading the Wall Street Journal every day or something like that yeah. since you were five. Or is entrepreneurship more of, um, is it is it idea agnostic, not to make it less romantic? Like, is it more about mobilizing teams and finding a viable idea and being able to handle the pragmatism in that way. So um, you started a ton of companies, and, and I just wanted I wanted to get your take on that. Sure. So that it was only two, uh, so I can't take credit for a ton. But um, you know, I think I think I'll answer this both as an entrepreneur and also as you know in the book I, I talk about entrepreneurs as a type of creative, and so that I talk about some of the research on entrepreneurship. And so I'll give you so two sides of this. The research on entrepreneurship shows, and this definitely lives up to my experience. That the most successful entrepreneurs, so like, and this is not, I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about people I've met, but also what the mm -hmm. research says, are people who engage in problem finding, not, they don't, they're not solution finding. So they, they start with a problem. They're looking for a big problem to solve, and that's what they focus their entrepreneurial endeavor around. And once they find that problem, the solution can be a whole mix of things. I think a very classic first-time entrepreneur mistake is they start with a solution, and then they try and find a problem to fit it to. So you often find first entrepreneurs talking about, you know, I'm trying to find product market fit. 
Right. And that to me is always this warning bell of like you just built a little uh, gadget that you think is interesting, and you're trying to find some problem to solve. Right. Ooh, that's not good. Um, yeah. And then the second answer to your question is, you know, I think, you know, a lot of my friends are CEOs. Like a lot of my friends are startup founders. I mean, the like the truth of it is that like a lot of this stuff you hear around origin stories and stuff is made up, right? I mean, like eBay, you know, there's this famous story of Pierre Omidyar was like, you know, created eBay because he wanted to like trade Pez dispensers because like his girlfriend was into them or something. That's a completely made up story. He was just, he was just a business guy and he just it's thought it was table, a business. Yeah. yeah. And so what you find is like, when you actually, when you, you sort of know a lot of these people personally, you find that, like, they'll sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, tell you the truth. But I think I think sort of the unfortunate side effect of that is I think a lot of people are sort of walking around waiting for their, like, magical strike of, uh, you know, strike of lightning, and, like, that's not how it actually works. Like, a lot of these people who have been very successful um, are very diligent. They're very intentional. Um, they know how to find interesting problems. They know how to pattern match business models. Um, it's not magic. It's practice. Right. So would you mind taking me through your career arc real quick, uh, sure. <laughs> starting chronologically? So I think I think we might have graduated about the same time, which makes me feel a little bad. But. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm secretly 42, so don't worry. Um, okay. No. Um, so I graduated, I, I graduated GW um, – so I started a company in college that was a performance marketing company focused on education marketing, and we were doing all sorts of Facebook stuff back before that was a thing. This was like 2010, and okay. so um, this was like when Facebook was like a wild west of marketing, even more so than it is now, um, and you're kind of seeing that come home to roost. And so I started that company right. <laughs> in college. And um, we sold it right after I graduated in 2011 for like a tiny amount of money, like a you know a little little thing. Um, and so that was sort of my first real entrepreneurial experience. And that was, you know, we had five full-time employees. We'd raised no money, and so it was a really good experience. But I was like, you know, um, I was like, you know, literally three years old. And uh, <laughs> so um, graduated in 2011, and then um, from that, I had met a few people. I'd met a local entrepreneur who had previously started a, a public company that ended up going public, really successful. And he was doing a new company and he had become sort of like a big brother, mentor, friend figure to me. And he said, Hey, you understand digital marketing in a very new way. Why don't you come be um, CMO of my venture back startup? And so I did that. It was an awesome experience right out of college and sort of very, I think, you know, I was definitely lucky. And then yeah. he, he it was a really active angel investor, and he said, hey, you know, on the side, you know, I kind of want to start a little venture fund, um, but I need someone to help help me do it because I'm a little, you know, I have stuff going on. Right. And, you know, would you want to work on that sort of nights and weekends with me? And so we started this little venture fund that was like a tiny, like $3.5 million venture fund, and um, we started with one other guy. And so so the main the main job was, you know, CMO of this venture back startup, and then me and the CEO um, were also doing this little venture fund. And so that was a really good experience for sort of very early in my career, and definitely something I think I, I lucked into because, you know, doing the venture stuff gave me really good um, ability to see across a really wide array, array of businesses and, like, see mm -hmm. what was working, not working. And then right. obviously doing the marketing 
that role is what you know gave me the the idea for track maven because I found that this was back in you know 2011 2012 there was all this data exhaust coming off from digital marketing but it was really hard to capture it and it was really hard you know, once you capture it to actually turn into something valuable most marketers are not like analytical staff data science people they're marketers they like to tell stories they like to be creative like that's that's their role that's what excites them and so I had always sort of loved um, the sort of logical analytical side of it. And so um, I realized like there was a big opportunity to be like the company uh, for marketers when they're thinking about that stuff. So I started TrackMaven in late 2012 and um, raised the seed round of funding, hired, hired a team, built out the MVP of the product, and you know, have slowly built out from there where you know, now the company is really focused on um, two fronts. We have a big data platform where we suck in lots of data and allow people to do analysis work you know, on the data themselves. And we also have a team of experts who people hire to do a lot of the analysis and insights for them. So if you're a big marketing team and you don't have that capability in your house, we can actually handle it for you. And That's so, yeah, and, so, and now it's 2018. We're here. Yeah, wow. And, and I think what's, at least to me, the most compelling is is that you – you put ROI front and center. I think that that is the most daunting challenge. Um, and obviously, you know, more than me, but it seems like how you spend your marketing dollars and actually seeing a return on that um, can really be like a, a, a mystery for most, for most people. Totally, 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 totally. Um, so this goes by really fast. Uh, it's interesting so far, but would you be up for a lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, this first thing I stole from Tyler Cowen. He has a podcast, The Economist. It's overrated, underrated. And so I'm going to give you a piece of office jargon, and you're going to tell me whether you think it's overrated or underrated. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Ready? Uh, circle back. Uh, uh, overrated. <laughs> uh, prefacing the idea with at the end of the day. Oh, underrated. You think so? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I need to use that more. Um, I feel like when you start it with at the end of the day, it's never like a really great idea that comes after. <laughs> like you're basically saying, I don't have a great idea, but here we go. Uh, okay. I'll, I'm going to practice that. <laughs> saying, saying the word leverage instead of the word use. Oh, overrated. Please stop. <laughs> uh, saying brain dump instead of teach. Mm, underrated. Okay, I like it. I like it. Uh, run it up the flagpole. Oh, definitely underrated. I run. I want to run lots of things up the flagpole. <laughs> All right, let's do one more. Uh, <laughs> this one. This one bugs me personally. But have you ever heard someone say fact based? Fact based. Fact based. As in, when someone writes all your stuff down for you. So, like, what is our fact base on this? No, I haven't. <laughs> underrated. Oh my god. Underrated. Yeah. Underrated. Yeah, I want to use that. Just We're going to circle you. back, get our fact base, <laughs> and run up the flagpole. And run it up the flagpole. Um, okay. Uh, who are you reading right now? What are you reading? I guess. Oh my god. Um, I am reading right now a book um, called <laughs> On Love. It's about the uh, philosophy of love. I forget the the guy who wrote it. It's really good. Some, that sounds great. A Harvard professor. Um, it's really good. I, I've I've read one of your columns about uh, sort of 
CEOs taking care of themselves and, and like actually the effect of uh, uh, kind of self care and therapy. And I was like, this this person seems very in touch with management and with himself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about very in touch, but maybe aspiring to be. How's that? <laughs> okay, good. Um, what was the phrase that knocked you out on Wheel of Fortune? Oh God. Oh. So it was. So here's what happened on Wheel of Fortune. So for those of you. Um, those are tuning in. I was a, when I was 18 years old. I was on Wheel of Fortune, and I did terribly. And um, I got bankrupt twice. And oh then man! Joan from Alexandria, who maybe is listening, I haven't seen her in a very long time. Joan from Alexandria won sixty thousand um, dollars because she was like amazing. She like there were two R's on the screen. She goes Pride and Prejudice, and I was like, I'm literally dead. No I'm, way. I am gone. Like, yeah. And so it was It was Pride and Prejudice. I should have read more Jane Austen. Yeah, right. Um, and then the last question, uh, what's the what's the best career advice you've ever received? Oh, my God. Um, I think the best, the best career advice is, you know, this is such a hard question, obviously, because I think being an entrepreneur is such a, is such a different path. I think the, the thing that I would maybe, I'd go off, I'd go up a level and say is that I think a lot of people don't see until late in their career that, you know, it's all kind of, it's all human, right? Like every company, every institution, all this stuff is all very, very human. And all the flaws that come with that, all the positives that come with that, all the negatives that come with that. And I definitely see a lot of people, you know, who, sort of look at these, you know, corporates or whatever with this sort of like reverence as if it's this like this thing outside of the fact that it's really just a collection of people who are bonded together through a bunch of contracts. And um, I think you need to realize that to approach your career in a really effective way. Because otherwise, you know, if you just think about your career as, hey, I'm on this, 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 you know, this corporate, you know, career path that I can see in a spreadsheet I think you're sort of missing the point, if that makes sense. That's really great advice. I I feel like you might have the best so far. (laughs) Amazing. Well, listen, I love avocado toast, so this show is meant for me. (laughs) Well, it was really great having you today, Alan. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at careercentralonline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.